0: Thank mm-hmm. you. The body eats the bad stuff, and it's so smart that it knows what cells to take out. They're releasing, they're digging into visceral fat. So much of the toxins is held in the fat. They're getting too much autophagy, and they're not able to get rid of the toxins fast enough. Diet variation, which I call feast, famine, cycling, it's one of the greatest biohacks that we can do. When you change your diet, it's like exercise. You get stronger and stronger. If you can get away with just simply fasting, I think there's nothing more.
1: Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Today's episode with Dr. Pompa is amazing. And what I really love about this episode is the breadth of topics that we cover. We go deep into detox, into fasting, also something that I'm really interested in, which is cyclical eating. So changing up your macros, should you change your macros? Should you try higher carb, lower carb? What effects does that have on the body? So much more. I love this man, I love what he's doing, and I think you'll really enjoy today's episode. The show notes for today's episode will be at MelanieAvalon.com FastingDetox. In this episode, we do briefly discuss Dr. Pompa's supplement to support detox, and that is called Cytodetox. And if you go to MelanieAvalon.com slash Cytodetox, that's C-Y-T-O-D-E-T-O-X, Detox, you will get 20% off one bottle or 30% off two bottles. I am a Himalaya partnered show, and if you follow the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast in the Himalaya app, which is my favorite app of all time to listen to podcasts, you will get early access to the show 24 hours in advance. You can also join my exclusive premium community on Himalaya. There you'll be able to comment on episodes, make guest requests, you'll get exclusive content from me each month. And also launching soon, you'll soon get access to exclusive episodes straight from me. So get super excited for that. And that will be automatically included in your membership when that change happens. Also, please, please join me in my Facebook community. That is Paleo OMAD Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. It's an amazing, wonderful community to talk about all things fasting, detox, biohacking, really honestly anything you want to talk about. You can talk about the weather if you want. (laughs) And now I'm just thinking about all the things I could talk about the weather. See, that's how I am with tangents. Okay. (laughs) But anyway, please do join me there. All right. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Daniel Pompa. Hi, friends. So I am thrilled to be here today with Dr. Daniel Pompa. Guys, this is somebody I've been following his work for so long. He is one of the go-to experts on fasting, on detoxification, on the ketogenic diet, on cyclical eating. There are so many topics that I'm really, really excited to get into here. I think everybody's going to learn a lot but a little bit about Dr. Pompa. Like I said, he's a go-to expert on the topics that I just discussed. He's trained as a chiropractor, but has really become an authority on health and wellness, especially after having overcome his own illnesses, his own neurotoxic illness. So I'm sure we will get into that in detail. You might be familiar with Dr. Pompa if you are a podcast listener, because he also hosts the Cellular Healing TV podcast and also Health Hunters radio show. And he also has a fantastic book on fasting, which I just learned you're having a new version coming out soon, so we can definitely put a link in the show notes to that for listeners. But thank you, Dr. Pompa, so much for being here.
0: I love these topics. I'm glad to be here.
1: So I thought to start things off, would you like to tell listeners just a little bit about your personal health history and what led you to where you are today, why you're so interested in fasting and detox and all those things? (laughs)
0: Yeah, from pain to purpose. All these topics, I didn't choose it. They chose me. (laughs) You know, I mean, I'm sure so many people in our space, you know, have a story of why they get so passionate about things. But yeah, you know, I mean, I was just going along life at such a high level. I mean, I had a very successful, thriving practice helping people. I was in the best shape of my life, honestly. I was racing bikes at the time at the expert level, had two young kids, great wife, all good until it started like that i mean just like so many people listening to this it just kept escalating from fatigue to being allergic to everything i ate couldn't figure it out to anxiety panic attacks insomnia thyroid issues my hair falling out skinny fat adrenal issues to the point where i couldn't even watch a movie with the kids i literally remember going into a movie and having to keep leaving because the excitement of a kid's movie and the loudness of it was just too much for me. And my wife would be moving hangers back and forth and the sound would drive me nuts. I spent so many nights just awake. If I fell asleep, I would just like wake up between two and four in the morning, not being able to get back to sleep or, or I couldn't get to sleep at all. One or the other, you know, and then I'd be left wiped out. But even when I did sleep, which was rare, I was still wiped out. I just had massive, I couldn't exercise. I, I also remember doing like Something simple as like bicep curls one day, and it just destroying me. I would have more anxiety and worse sleep. And like most people, I spent years trying to balance my thyroid and my adrenals and my hormones. You know, it was just too far downstream, you know, and I remember at one point saying, okay, it's something with my control tower of my hormones, which is your pituitary hypothalamus. But I just couldn't figure out what it was. And when I would try to address that, just like my thyroid and my adrenals, I I mean, some things might have got better, but most things were getting worse. So I just didn't know what was wrong. And make a long story short, online one day, I found Mad Hatter's disease, which was mercury poisoning. The people making felt hats were using mercury as a part of the process. And um, I was a Mad Hatter. (laughs) Simple as that. I had all the symptoms. So I went and got a blood test. But unfortunately, it was uh, negative. And I was really disappointed. It was about a year or so later, I made friends with a very bright endocrinologist to you know, try to figure out my thyroid issues and adrenal issues. And he said, Dan, I think you have mercury poisoning. And I said, oh, I thought so too. But I did a blood test. He said, well, that's the wrong test. That would be if you had acute mercury poisoning, meaning being poisoned every day like the Mad Hatters, right? They were using mercury. But I think you would have chronic mercury toxicity. So do this test where you challenge it out of your tissue and then uh, look at it. And sure enough, I did that. And there it was amongst some other heavy metals that should have been not at that level in my body. And so I said, where do you think I got that from? (laughs) But the the logical question, and he said, "Uh, did you have any dental work done around the time this all happened? And sure enough, I did. That's just shortly after that, the fatigue started. I just never correlated it. And then I really went on. The rampage of trying to figure out how to get this out of my body and in particular, my brain correctly. And going online, it was a disaster of contradicting information when it comes to heavy metal detox. And I sought through it and everything I teach doctors around the world now really came from my own rescue of that. So there's the story.
1: Yeah, I relate so much to so much that you said there. I as well experienced mercury toxicity. Mine was so bad that when I got the blood test, it was shockingly high, like the blood test. And I remember the functional practitioner, she was like, your blood test should really never be that high. And mine was, I think it was six times the reference range. So if you can imagine when I did the urine challenge chelation that you talked about, that was (laughs) as well, quite a shocker. It's so funny though. I remember you said you know that you were almost disappointed when you got the negative. And I think people might not be like, why why would you be disappointed? But it's because you want to find the answer so bad when you know something is wrong that you want that golden ticket saying this is it. But so happy that you did find the cause of all of these issues that you were experiencing. And it sounds like in the end, hopefully you came out All the stronger. And I've learned so much about, you know, fasting and detox and all of that. And so we can definitely get into detox. I did want to start off a little bit with fasting because you are such an expert in that field. And I have to remember. So, like I was talking to you before, I am the co-host of the intermittent fasting podcast. So I kind of assume that everybody, you know, knows all the fasting things or has been listening, but you know, this could be a whole new brand new audience. So what has been your experience? with fasting? How did that come into come into play with your own detoxification? Just in general, what do you believe are the health benefits of fasting?
0: Mm, so much here. In 1990s, I was intrigued with fasting. Now, keep in mind, this was before I was sick. And, you know, I think my love for it came just because it's really harnessing the innate intelligence, which just resonated with my whole philosophy, remove the interference and the body can heal. And Fasting was just that complete reliance on allowing the body to heal in an order that it wants to heal, you know, in the just in the method it wants to do it in, and the, uh, you know, it's just absolutely taking the energy that it would normally utilize to process food, assimilate food, and I call it energy diversion, and it diverts the energy towards healing. It's, it's kind of like. When you have a vacation, all of a sudden you your honeydew list, you know, all these things you want to do, you start doing because now you have the time and the energy (laughs) to start getting things done. That's what the innate intelligence does. But yeah, I mean, that was all the way back then. Back then, no one cared about fasting. There was like a a group of kind of outcasts known as the uh, Natural Hygiene Society. And Dr. Shelton and I read all his books, and you know, it was just an odd group of people that I was like, gosh, I, you know, I love this, but I I couldn't really get anyone interested. Back then it was like, that's called starving. And, you know, how possibly could that be good? You know, now I I think there's a greater understanding for even with some new science and breakthrough. But, you know, I mean, there's a difference. So we kind of have to break this down into two categories. The daily intermittent fasting where, you know, we're fasting for a window of 15, 24 hours, who knows. That has certain benefits. But then there's block fasts or extended fasts where you're fasting for, a few days at a time and there's really long fasts, and there's five-day fasts, which is probably what i train docs the most on which have different benefits in fasting every day right so when you look at the benefits of fasting i think there's a crossover in fasting for 15 hours 24 hours in fasting for five days meaning that you get this autophagy that i'm sure you've talked so much about it's a boring subject for your listeners but the body eats the bad stuff, and it's so smart that it knows exactly what cells to take out that are living too long called senescent cells. And then it's so smart that it replaces it by upregulating a stem cell and replaces it with a cell that's more naive and not hyperactive if it's an immune cell that driving autoimmune. That's one of the reasons why fasting, in particular longer fast, works so well for food sensitivities, allergies, hyperimmunity, autoimmune because it really gets rid of these hyperactive cells, immune cells, and replaces them with more naive cells. And and more recent science shows that. But I've utilized this fasting for years with really the only understanding I had from a scientific standpoint was just, hey, you rely on the innate intelligence. It knows what to do. And people back then would say, oh, but it lowers your immune system because they would see this big drop in white blood cells, right, on, on blood tests. And I would say, yeah, but I don't know. It seems like it down regulates autoimmune and up regulates good immunity, especially over a few months after a fast. Now we know that that drop in white blood cells is the autophagy, you know, getting rid of those bad cells. Anyway, I mean, you know, so I think we kind of have to break it down into long fast, short fast, and then, you know, realizing that there is a crossover. But regardless, I believe that we need as humans to fast and it's missing in our society because we have only an opportunity to feast <laughs> and without the opportunity to fast we don't reset our bad genes that get turned on we don't reset our microbiome which is more benefits of fasting
1: there's so much there i'm glad you brought up the senescent cells i've been doing a lot of research on those recently and for listeners they're they're kind of scary so they're basically in a way, they're like zombie cells. So they're cells that have stopped functioning correctly, but at the same time, they refuse to die. And so they're just there. And then they send out inflammatory cytokines and can affect other cells. And they're really, really fascinating. And so it's so interesting that we can use fasting with this process of autophagy. And to clarify again for new listeners, that is basically where we are breaking down these old proteins that we can you know, make such radical changes. Follow-up question on that. So With autophagy and breaking down these old cells or these old immune cells, you were speaking about the difference between, you know, a short term, like daily intermittent fast versus a long fast. Do you think somebody practicing what may be more approachable and lifestyle suited? Do you think somebody practicing a daily intermittent fast could by doing enough of that? reach that point of autophagy to clear out things like senescent cells and old immune cells? Or do you think a longer fast is necessary for those type of changes?
0: No, there hasn't been a study done on that. But I, I can tell you from the studies that I've read that, you know, there is some autophagy even in a 15 hour fast. However, I can tell you clinically, when we deal with very sick people, challenging cases, that there are no doubt clinically is a much greater benefit from longer fasting. Now, with that said, you know, my book, Beyond Fasting, is really about how you bring someone up to a successful fast, meaning many just sick people just can't fast. We want to get them fat adapted first. We want to really prepare them for the fast to make it easier, of course, but also to get the results of maximum autophagy. And in my book, I talk about how to test to see when you're getting maximum autophagy and you know, which is really critical. And I can tell you this, you know, too, just by that test, and we look at basically ketone and glucose levels. And when you hit a certain ratio, then we're able to say, okay, wow, you know, you're, you're at this max autophagy when your glucose and ketones, meaning your glucose should be dropping and your ketones rising. And when they hit a one-to-one ratio, we know you're starting to enter into this max And when, when you say one-to-one ratio, if you take the, the number 80 as a glucose, divide it by 18, you end up with the European standard. And then you compare that to your normal, how we measure ketones, right, and millimolars. So you would say, okay, if my glucose, after dividing it by 18, is 3.4, my ketones are 3.4. That's a one-to-one ratio. Who made that ratio popular is Thomas Seyfried. And I was in a mastermind with him and Joe Marcola and some others. And, you know, he was talking about watching tumors shrink as an indicator of autophagy and when it would stop as an indicator that you're moving out of autophagy and max autophagy. And I thought, well, why can't we use this for the average person? And sure enough, it it works, right? In his study, they realized that when you hit this one-to-one ratio, we see tumors shrinking. And we're keeping them in that autophagy enough to get rid of cancerous tumors. So, of course, the average person getting rid of bad cells and senescent cells, this applies. So, during a longer fast, we're able to hit that one-to-one ratio. Typically, it takes people about three days to hit. Now, if you really prepare yourself, and, and again, that's what I talk about in my book, you can literally hit that day one of a fast and start seeing max autophagy day one, right? So, even when I daily intermittent fast you know, I can get much greater results. But still, I go far beyond that one to one ratio when I fast, because I'm very prepared for that fast. But to answer your question, I believe the longer fasts have greater autophagy, and therefore greater stem cell, and therefore greater benefits, more energy diversion and all these benefits we see in fasting. But with that said, I intermittent fast, I do it every day. But I definitely, at least four times a year, I do longer fasts.
1: That is fascinating. I actually was not aware of that ratio. So I just learned, (laughs) I just learned a lot there. Do you think for those who a longer fast either is not feasible from a willpower perspective, from, you know, an underweight perspective, from some other factor, what are your thoughts on? Could you hack it in a way with things like like the fasting mimicking diet, for example, or a ketogenic low protein diet in an intermittent fasting pattern? Do you think that would be a way to get the benefits of, ex- of an extended fast?
0: Absolutely. And you know, for years, I've used partial fasting. I learned it from a uh, French gentleman Albert Mazier, and from other work, he realized that coming out of a pure water fast, putting people into a partial fast, you would get this autophagy going again. And some really sick people actually did better with partial fasting. So I used that as a tool years ago. And now with Walter Longo's work, and I've worked closely with his group there, partial fast, if you will, to use my language, is called the prolone. And it's basically a certain amount of food for five days. You know, ironically, I love the number five for a longer fast. Some people definitely benefit from longer fast, but a five-day fast multiple times for most people seems to work better. Why five? Because it takes about day four to where they break through and they're not hungry anymore. And you know, just from a clinical standpoint, you know, you're getting this max autophagy. And then day five, we wanted to just ride it out one more day. You know, why not get those benefits one more day? That's how I arrived at a five-day fast. Now, clinically, uh, Longo's work showed that you do get, in fact, max autophagy day four for the average person. Again, if you Kind of do this prep before a fast, like I have in my book, you can get that much earlier than day four. But the average person, day four, and then day five, we see the maximum stem cells occurring. So we want to ride that out for five days. But yeah, I mean, I think that partial fasting, and in their case, the fasting mimicking diet, the proline diet, is a good way to do it. Look, as long as you do this, the key is getting your calories under 1,000. And if you're smaller, that could be 500 calories. You know, the average person, getting it around 800 calories a day for someone bigger, maybe a thousand. So restricting your calories. And then here's the other big important one, keeping your protein under 20 grams, because if you go above that, then you could knock yourself out of autophagy. So, you know, clinically we've seen the same for many years. Albert, his percentages were very similar and he and others have fasted thousands of people. Before there were studies done, if you will, and just knew too much protein knocks you out of autophagy. Too many calories, knocks you out of autophagy. Your body size definitely determines, you know, what your caloric amount would be that would keep you in or out of autophagy. So, yes, partial fasting oftentimes is where we start. Now, arguably, I believe if you can get to water fasting, you're gonna see really big numbers of autophagy. For example, if I do a prolone fast or a partial fast, you know, I'll see glucose and ketone numbers above the max autophagy where some of my clients don't get to max autophagy with those fasts but when they do a water fast they get into these max autophagy numbers and I far exceed the numbers water fasting but I'll hit the number in a partial fast now again with that said you're still getting autophagy I think it's easier to do those fasts oftentimes although for me I think that not eating I lose my hunger very quickly and not eating is easier for me When I start fussing around in a kitchen with certain foods, it's hard for me. And when I eat a little, it's hard for me to stop. So that's one of the things I love about Longo's product, the Prolo, is because here's what I eat, and then my next box is the next day. You don't have to prepare anything, and you know this is what you have. I do love that about that product. So yeah, that's another option.
1: Hi, friends. I seriously had the time of my life last year and I would love to hang out with you guys and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world so when we expose our eyes to this light it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood that is crazy it helps with skin with mood this is the light that i wasn't thinking about that we need i love soul light therapy devices i do use it in combination with my red and near infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful that Ken at soul shine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at Melanie Avalon.com slash soul shine. That's S O L S H I N E I am the exact same way with the eating. (laughs) It's much easier for me. I'm an all or none extremist with the caveat of I think I could be an extremist if it were laid out, like you said, with that prolon. Also, for listeners, we did have Walter Longo on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. So I'll put a link there to that episode if you'd like to learn more about his work, because he has a lot of really, really fascinating work.
0: You know, I like love him and his work. But you know, I mean, you have the intermittent fasting thing. I mean, he is, he believes you should eat every 12 hours, right? I don't agree with him respectfully. I believe that that is true, perhaps, for the average person who's not fat adapted, right? I mean, there's a lot of factors around that. And, you know, and he talks poorly water fasting is, you know, dangerous and this. That. For years. Now, again, with that said, certain medications, you should do a supervised fast. You have to be careful with medications on any fast for that matter. So there's always cautions. But clinically, I speak. And I can tell you that, thank God we have all the types of fasting. Because depending on where you are at certain times, certain fasts are better for other people. And water fasting, partial fasting. Myself and the doctors I train would tell you, we need all of those tools. And there's great benefits to all of them. But there's not one. I'm not promoting just water fasting. I don't think you should be promoting just this fasting. I think we need all these tools.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for saying that. I agree completely because actually when we had him on the podcast, I mean, I'm I'm so grateful for his work because I think there is so much to learn from it as far as like you said, with, you know, autophagy and just he's done so much work and there really is a lot there. And we've learned a lot when we brought him on the intermittent fasting podcast, though, it definitely sparked A lot of controversy because of what you're saying with his thoughts on fasting. But the way I see it, I'm on the same page as you. I think that, you know, we can always be learning and there's so many different approaches that work for different people. And I'm just always looking to learn and finding what best benefits me and I think benefits the individual. Speaking of, I did want to clarify a little bit for listeners because we kind of jumped in really quickly into the extended fasting. A lot of people do practice, you know, the daily intermittent fasting. And I just wanted to clarify that in that sort of situation, you're not going to be limiting your protein intake and things like that. So coming to the daily intermittent fasting. So Dr. Pompa, how how do you practice it? What does that look like in your life?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, when we look at healthy people, they get up in the morning and because of the dawn effect, meaning your body pushes out glucose, your glucose is highest first thing in the morning. Cortisol goes up, glucose goes up. I mean, it doesn't go up to abnormal readings, but it will be your typically your highest level fasting, meaning that, you know, when you eat, of course it goes up much higher, but it's normal for glucose to go up because what is it doing? It's providing you with energy that you need and therefore you don't have hunger. Your glucose goes up and, you know, your body has all the energy it needs. So when you look at most very healthy countries, they they typically wake up and they don't eat. So I always tell people to pick an eating window when you're intermittent fasting that works for you, your schedule. I mean, arguably eating too late at night is not good, especially for those looking to lose weight or diabetics. So maybe your eating window can be a little earlier. But, you know, I don't complicate that. I say pick a window that works for you. And then I have a way of testing to see even if your fasting window, if you will, the amount of hours you're fasting even works for you. I have a way to test to see if your coffee works in your fasting window. So we can talk about that. But um, you know, the point is, though, is I think that most healthy people wake up, they're not hungry, they're surviving on the glucose, their body just pushed out. And if you look at that, hunger will eventually come and you can respond to that.
1: So you said you have a way to test for that. What is that way? (laughs) Dying to know.
0: (laughs) So again, you have to understand, I work with clients virtually now from, you know, all over the world. I coach them, but I'm typically dealing with someone who's more health challenged, obviously. And oftentimes we're, we don't want to just stick them into a fasting window that is metabolically not possible for them. So how do we determine that? So I'll say, okay, let's just push out, say breakfast until 10 o'clock. They're used to eating maybe at eight o'clock. And then I want you to test your morning glucose and ketones first thing in the morning. You get those numbers, right? So let's just make up numbers. Let's say your glucose is 90 and your ketones are 0.5. Okay. And then I want to retest them right before your first meal at, say, 10 o'clock. Okay. So if you're eating at 10 and let's say dinner stopped at 7, you could figure out the eating window there. What is that? A 15-hour fast, something like that. Okay. So you're intermittent fasting 15 hours. So we're going to test first thing in the morning, glucose and ketones, and then right before that first meal to see if this 15-hour fasting window works for you. And if your glucose drops down and your ketones trends up, then it's working. And then we can keep pushing that window. But if we start to see a rise in glucose, in glucose not trending down, this is now there's factors. If you exercise, you're going to throw this off. So you have to do it on a day you don't exercise. If you eat, obviously you're going to throw it off. So we have to, you know, not do that. So let's say we push it out to one o'clock in the afternoon. You would take your morning glucose and ketones and then test it again at one o'clock in the afternoon. So watching the glucose trend down and ketones trend up, we're watching the body basically sacrifice glucose for fat and make more ketones. And that means, okay, great. We're heading in the correct autophagy direction. And again, it's not perfect, but it sure does work on average. So I tell people to get three or four days of doing that and we can kind of get an average. And by the way, we do the same for does your coffee work in that fasting window? And again, Thomas Seyfried, I have to give him credit for this because when they were working with cancer patients and watching tumors shrink or not, they realized when some people drank coffee or black tea, caffeine, whatever it was, they would notice that it would stop the autophagy. And so they would either switch what they were drinking or take it away completely, and it would kick back in. And how did they know test their glucose? So I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the perfect test for the average person for their coffee. So what we do is we take our morning glucose, and then 30 minutes after the coffee, the way you drink it, whether it's fat, no fat, black, who knows, then you 30 minutes after your coffee, you test your glucose again. If it rises up every time after more than five then you got to switch either the way you're drinking your coffee or what you're drinking, period. Because if glucose rises, we know that it breaks you out of that autophagy.
1: Can I ask you a quick question about that? So what would be the mechanism of glucose raising, stopping autophagy, which is related to protein intake?
0: Yeah. Well, no, but see, it will, the body, it's energy, right? So the body from an energy standpoint, will stop looking for its other energy. Think about why does a body go into autophagy during a fast? Because it needs energy. It needs some protein, yes, of course, right? It needs amino acids, but what does it also need? It also needs energy. So, you know, it's going to reach into autophagy for energy. So therefore, if you're giving it glucose, too much glucose, it'll back off that autophagy. And that's why Seyfried would see the tumors stop shrinking with the glucose rise. Is because it's backing off the energy it's reaching for. I mean, arguably, the body will reach for energy first, and then it will reach for protein for repair.
1: So that glucose that rises during the fasting, I mean, presumably, is that coming from gluconeogenesis in the liver?
0: Yes, could be, right? It could be that. It could be gluconeogenesis for some muscle breakdown, protein breakdown. Who knows? You know, I mean, but yes, most likely, I would say your body's going, okay, look, I'm not yet efficient enough to break your fat down, I'm going to keep pushing out glucose and a form of gluconeogenesis from the liver.
1: Gotcha. In general, with your patients and coffee, because I know people have so many, we get probably on the intermittent fasting podcast, the biggest question we get is coffee. We get so many questions about coffee. In general, have you seen a trend with people responding negatively or positively to coffee while fasting?
0: (laughs) So, So at my seminars, I have health centers, of the future is my seminars. And, you know, we get probably three, 400 doctors at each seminar. My next one's in Newport Beach, by the way. I don't know when this is airing, but November 14 through the 17th. And anyway, so for fun, we've done this probably the last four years, maybe longer. We have everybody test their morning glucose and ketones. And then we have some people doing the coffee test where they do their glucose 30 minutes later. And then we have a show of hands. Right, how many people? It was like every year I've done it, it's like 50-50. You know, it just seems like so many people, it's like it's half and half, where coffee actually, you know, doesn't affect it. Some people it helps and some people it doesn't. Then we did fat, no fat. And it was across the board there too. Sometimes if you're doing fat, it could be raising glucose and you go black. Some people black fat helps. So it's it's so different for everyone that ultimately the message is test.
1: No, that is so funny. And I'm actually glad you brought up the fat. So things that we're having during the fast. So what are your thoughts on supplementing, for example, like MCT oil during the fast for ketones or yeah, what what are your thoughts on that?
0: I think if you can get away with just simply fasting, I think there's nothing more natural than just allowing and teaching your body to feed from its own fat. Right? I mean, you know, arguably MCT oil helps you burn fat, right, but it's still an energy source. Scientists that I've spoke to about this feel that no no matter what it will take away from some of the autophagy, I think that some people struggle with appetite and different things, and I think it could be an adjunct for some people for different reasons, so I'm not against it. But again, I would test you know what does that MTC oil do to your blood sugar 30 minutes later? I don't know. test it. But as a whole. I would say try to just fast if you can. I mean, again, I I like that warm thing in the morning, whether it be coffee or tea. So I think that's a very natural thing. But test just to see if it's uh, as long as your glucose isn't rising consistently.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely a big proponent of we like to call it clean fasting. So water, black coffee, if that floats your boat and works for you. Otherwise, you know, like you said, I love what you said about, you know, the body will naturally instigate these healing processes if we just take away (laughs) all of the things, stopping that. One more quick supplement question, then we can move on to some other topics. How do you feel, though? There is one supplement I found pretty beneficial during fasting, and that is taking proteolytic enzymes and specifically seropeptase. Do you think those would catalyze the fast or have you ever experimented with those?
0: Well, I think that it wouldn't interfere. They're enzymes right? So I would have no problem with somebody doing it. And I think that it would help some people. Some people, it may be a wash, but I would say there's no harm in trying. You know, some of them are really toxic people. They struggle. I mean, even intermittent fasting, they definitely struggle long fasting. We use some binders. There's one cytodetox, there's another one called bind. And they're able to fast as long as you're binding up the toxins, because a lot of people due to autophagy, oftentimes, they're releasing, they're digging into visceral fat so much of the toxins is held in the fat and they have problems because the toxin release by taking these binders they're able to get much greater results from their fast and frankly feel better recently i was at a a hospital my son broke his back long story but we were there for a re-x-ray and this woman was literally talking about jason fung my wife was like oh you know This is my husband, Dr. Pop. Anyway, the conversation went crazy from there. And uh, very knowledgeable ladies that I spoke to, very knowledgeable. And the one said, well, you know, I had lost probably 40 pounds fasting. And that's why I love fasting. However, it stopped. And I'm now not able to lose weight. And I'm actually gaining weight back. Why is that? And I said, oh, the answer is simple. I see this all the time. It's because now you're digging into your visceral fat and you're releasing so many toxins and that's creating basically hormone resistance because the receptors to the hormones that really that's the key to staying lean and using fat as energy it's blunting those receptors. So you're not hearing your hormones. So now you have a hormone problem. That's why you're gaining weight again. She's like, Oh my God, that's exactly what's happening. to me." <laughs> so, you know, I mean, when you do fasting, the detox, my cellular detox really plays into the second part of this biohack that's so important. You know, it's like, because we live in such a neurotoxic society today, and you know, we're exposed to so many different types of neurotoxins, you have to address that.
1: I am so glad you brought that up. And we are on the same page because that's exactly where I was heading. Because so for me, when I started intermittent fasting, it was actually, I know a lot of people do struggle at the beginning with becoming quote, fat adapted or struggle with hunger at the beginning. For me, I came from a low carb type approach and it was actually pretty effortless from day one. And I did it for i mean years and never had a problem with hunger. I can say that honestly, like it was never an issue i never struggled with fasting until <laughs> i did get that mercury toxicity which i mean it seems hard that cuz i got, i got it from fish it seemed to hit me really really fast and i i mean i think it was some personal choices where i'd only been eating basically low mercury fish for you know a while and then i moved back to la and i discovered <laughs> swordfish. Yeah. So basically everything kind of crumbled. But what was really interesting was that fasting became very, very difficult all of a sudden. And I was like, wow, this is so interesting. Because up until then, I'd been thinking it was all about fat adaption or something. And then I realized there was definitely another layer there when it comes to toxins and detox. And for a lot of people, when they enter that fasted state, it does lead to rapid excretion of these toxins and then the potential for recirculation of them, especially if they're not bound to and excreted. And you mentioned your bind and detox. so I'd love to get into details about that. But so in general, if somebody is experiencing these detox type reactions while fasting, is it safe for them to be fasting? Are they potentially causing more harm than good by potentially redistributing those, you know, metals or toxins? Yeah. So what's going on there and how should listeners proceed if they are struggling?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, yeah, there's a potential for you redistributing toxins and crossing more toxins into your brain and nerve system. So supervised fasting, you know, is the way to go because there's certain signs that we can look for. I mean, one of which is like I said, why we test glucose and ketones. When we start seeing somebody not fat adapting, going into gluconeogenesis, not hitting the numbers, then we have to change something. We have to slow something down. You know, they're getting too much autophagy and they're not able to get rid of the toxins fast enough. We better add some binders, chelators, Help the cell function at a greater degree of detox. Again, I discuss these things in my book, of course, but it is so different for everybody. You know that's why I think, oh my gosh, I put out a little bit of knowledge, and you know everyone starts running and doing things that you know. <laughs> it's like there's a lot of learning. Twenty years of doing this.
1: Okay, so question about detoxing. You talked about people digging deeper and deeper, kind of like a fossil dig in a way, <laughs> and pulling out these toxins that are you know, stored within visceral fat and such. So is it possible to pull toxins out of fat stores without losing fat? Or do you have to lose the fat in order to pull out the toxins? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah, no, you can do it. My cellular detox, my method is about, I know when people think today of detox, they think of the colon cleanse, a sauna, Liver cleanse, Corella, you know, I mean, all these things, they're part of possibly detox, but they're too far downstream to truly matter. You have to get to the cell to really have real detox, meaning the cell has a process that it does day in, day out to get rid of the toxins, even it makes when it makes energy. It's called endogenous toxins. And then, of course, there's the exogenous toxins that come into the cell and affect the cell function. We have to upregulate that cell function so it can get rid of these toxins day in, day out. The problem is, is that over the years of accumulating, bioaccumulating toxins, we lose that function. So I don't care how many colon cleanses you do, saunas, you have to upregulate and fix these processes. My five R's has become a roadmap to teaching doctors on how to do this. And it's cut on to the public because it was simple enough but the 5Rs are, okay, these are the cell functions that have been downregulated with the amount of toxins that we're exposing ourselves to, and these are the things that we need to upregulate so the cell can do what it was you know, meant to do. So when you do that process, to answer your question, yes, you can remove toxins from the fat cells without burning the fat. As a matter of fact, arguably, before you dig too deep, you might need some detox. You know, the body's so intelligent. Again, I coach people... From around the world with this process. And you'll see people who their innate intelligence will not lose weight until you get to a further point down the road with cellular detox. And then all of a sudden the weight loss starts. Why? Most likely it was protecting itself. It knew that it just couldn't release the, all these toxins at once. It's, it's about survival. So all of a sudden we get down the road with the detox and then the weight starts coming off. I mean, I think there's you know, you're getting toxins off the cell membranes where the hormone receptors are. And the reason people can't lose weight, fat adapt, it's hormone issues driven by cellular problems, but arguably the innate intelligence knows what it wants to do, and what it can do. So as you unload the toxins, it'll also then say, okay, now we can start using this fat and burning it.
1: So that is fascinating. I love your understanding and clarification about detoxing on the cellular level. So Cytodetox and bind those products that you've formulated for detox. So how do they work specifically? What type of ingredients do they contain and how, how do they address this issue of actually detoxing from the cell compared to just, I guess, from like in general?
0: Yeah. You know, and I, I want to be clear. I, I'm not here to sell product and nor do I think it's as simple as buying a product, right? I, I mean, I, I teach a process. To doctors, when I take a client on, I I teach them what I teach my doctors. You know, this is a process so you can learn to do cellular detox so you have this art the rest of your life. And, And arguably, it's different for everybody. The chelators that they use, the amount of time on them, off. Real detox, you have to cycle on, off, but that's different for everybody. The binders and the chelators, the amounts, the doses, we kind of discover that as we go. But to answer your question, cytodetox, it was an evolution of creating this tool with very bright scientists you see so many of these uh, zeolite products on the market most of them actually everyone we've tested have been contaminated because they're such good binders these particles that come from volcanic soil but the problem is is that people take them and they actually introduce more toxins into their system so we developed a patented process of cleaning it So we're left with a real binder. The other problem is they're so big, the particles, we couldn't really get them across the gut. And the products that were doing this like hydrolyzed formulas where they make them small, we were testing the particles and they were too destroyed or bastardized to actually bind. So the challenge was keeping them with the integrity to bind and cleaning them and bringing them across the gut to the cell. Over the years, we've done that. As a matter of fact, the cytodetox that's on the market now has very small particles, that have the ability to cross into those cell membranes, which is critical, and into the cell. And then it has bigger particles that stay outside the cell and prevent the redistribution of toxins from going across to the brain, et cetera. And it's a liposome technology that was able to get it past the gut, but breaking them into the size particles, you know, that was some brilliant people that helped with that process. And I'm the, the practitioner going, this is what we need we need different sized particles because we need some that go in the cell. But when we experimented with a product that just had these small particles enter the cell, people would get too many symptoms. We knew we needed a particle that was a bigger to stay outside to prevent this redistribution. And then years ago, I took a process of upregulating cell function. And then we realized that many of the toxins would make their way to first the liver, where it binds to bile, and then bile is dumped in the gut to digest fat. But here's the problem. The toxins bind to the bile. The bile is designed to be reabsorbed back to the liver and the the lower small intestine. Well, guess what it brings with it? The toxins. And that's called auto intoxication. So developed bind over the years to just sit in the gut as a catcher's mitt. And there's four different types of binders there because there's so many different types of toxins. That's why. And it sits there, doesn't leave the gut. And it grabs the toxins and pulls it out so you don't auto-intoxicate. So we use cytodetox as a vehicle to make sure the toxins come from the cell out of the body, and we use bind to make sure they don't get reabsorbed into the bio, into the liver, and back into the body. So, you know, those two products, I would say, are at the heart of what we do, but we support the cell membrane, we support the mitochondria, we support methylation, you know, and those are a lot of those cell functions that are critical to upregulate. Otherwise, you're not going to get well.
1: Yes, yeah, so for listeners in the show notes, I will put links to both Cyto detox and Bind. And I believe we're going to be offering a discount to listeners. So I will find out what that is <laughs> with your team and I will provide that information as well. Okay, I have a few follow-up questions that I'm really glad you you brought these topics up. So speaking about just detoxing in general and like the role of bile. I have had so many questions about bile and I have done so much research and nobody has been able to answer. So I've been actually dying to ask you these questions because we do know that bile is really important. You know, it has, by itself, it has like an antimicrobial effect, I believe. You correct me on anything that I'm wrong about. And then it does play a really important part in, you know, breaking down fats and in the detoxification process. But then like you were saying, it can also, from what I've been seeing, lead to further toxicity issues if it's not properly excreted. So questions about bile. I've heard or read that, so is it recycled? Like, do we only have a certain amount of it and then it's like recycled or do we create new bile?
0: Well you heard both because both are true. So yeah, I mean, your, your body, right. It wants to survive. It wants to basically conserve energy. So of course it can recreate bile. However, it doesn't want to use the energy to do it. So it will recycle it to not utilize that energy. So it tries to recycle as much of the bile as you can. It's always going to lose some bile in excretion, but most of it is recycled. So it doesn't have to recreate it. But oftentimes part of the healing is we want the body to recreate it. Because there's something called hepatic, meaning liver, biliary, meaning bile, sludge, meaning toxic bile sludge. So hepatic biliary sludge tends to build up in very sick people, and all they do is keep rotating it around. And it's a sticking point. If you don't clear it, then you, you know, really you're just blocking the drainage. That's why people benefit from coffee enemas. Coffee enema works because the caffeine goes up the portal vein and it pushes out the bile. But here's the problem. They're only benefiting partly because you need a catcher's mitt in there to grab that toxic bio and pull it out, you know, and then you force the body to make newer, cleaner, if you will. And then what the problem is, the body will start mobilizing toxins. So you have to look upstream and make sure the cells are functioning and you have a binder upstream working too. So that's why, again, the system is over many years, 20 years I've been teaching it. So you really have to work within a system understanding this process.
1: Okay. So some more... I gotta, just got to get all these bile questions out because they've been haunting me for so long. Because I started supplementing with supplemental bile ever since I started getting digestive issues because I read, you know, it helps with breaking down fat and that it would help, also help with motility. So if you are supplementing with bile, I know a lot of people supplement with it when they don't have a gallbladder, for example. But if you are supplementing with it with a gallbladder, what would that effect be? Would that be leading to, I mean, is that encouraging a buildup of, like you said, this toxic sludge bile? Or would some people maybe be fine with it? Or should we ever supplement with bile, you think, if we have a gallbladder?
0: Yeah, I think there's a time and a place because if you have a hepatic biliary sludge, arguably you don't have a lot of usable bile and it becomes harder to break down fats, which you need to fix your cell membranes, etc. So giving bile helps you break down the fats better and utilize them better. And because a lot of your bile is basically being tied up, Into hepatic biliary sludge, so bile would be a good thing for you. I think that as your body gets healthier, then the need for the taking bile would become less and less. But I remember when I was sick, you know, I benefited from it. I even did something called a PC push, where I would take maybe two tablespoons of pure phosphatidylcholine, but I had to take bile with it. But I would put a binder ahead of it, like bind. And maybe 30 minutes before it, I'd take the bind. 30 minutes later, I would eat the thick fat with some bile. And it would still create a dump of my own toxic bile. And then it's dumping it into the catcher's mitt, the bind ahead of it. At that point, I didn't have bind. I was putting things in bind together. <laughs> so, you know, anyways, it's there's a certain carbon from Holland that has a, really in studies, it's the only carbon that actually can bind this bile complex. You know, it's a Nord-A type of carbon, super clean, but really super activated type of carbon. And where most people are buying carbon off the store shelves, it's contaminated. It doesn't have the binding capacity to really do the job. People will use bentonite clays that are toxic and contaminated. Listen, binders are toxic. They bind things. So you just have to be really cautious of the binders you use. So, you know, people use Corella, but... Cruella binds things great in petri dishes, but when you put it with the microbiome, it really doesn't. So there's a lot of bad information out there about binders. But getting that complex moving, even now, I will, will have people do a coffee enema. But if you don't take the bind 30 minutes before it, you're going to redistribute a lot of the toxins that you push out from the coffee enema.
1: That's so interesting. You take So you take the binder before the coffee enema. That's fascinating.
0: Thirty minutes. You want it sitting in there ahead of it, so it dumps it into it.
1: Okay, that is so good to know. And then, so funny, you brought up chlorella. I can't even tell you how many how many scientific journal articles I read about it because I was so on the fence about whether it would help or hurt for me. I think it really exacerbated my symptoms, so I I stopped with it.
0: It's a weak binder at best, and when you're really toxic, you're taking a weak binder. I mean, it can bind other chemicals, right? But when you're you know heavy metals and biotoxins from mold and these nasty types of really neurotoxins, it's not strong enough to bind them. And you just redistribute it. It's like poking a bee's nest, right? And they're just creating more problems.
1: And what are your thoughts on the role of fiber, especially from like fruits and vegetables in binding to toxins? I know like would that be limited to the – well, I guess it would be limited to the gut. But what – like is that really necessary for proper toxin excretion? Like I know there are a lot of people on the carnivore diet – these days, which I've been really fascinated by, but my hesitancy in it, because I'm a big self-experimenter, but my hesitancy in experimenting with it more has been my thoughts that I probably need dietary fiber to bind to any toxins I might be excreting. Yeah, no, I mean,
0: fiber does. I mean, it does get rid of a certain level of toxins, right? Even from toxins you might pick up in food. It's not like a super strong bind that you're going to you know, pull out necessarily things like heavy metals. But I think that fiber is a protective binder, that when we're eating good fiber, you're protecting yourself from the food, and arguably even some of the toxins you dump from the bile into the gut So, you know, people will benefit from fiber, you know, but then there's other problems with fiber, right? You get people who are sick and challenged. They have SIBO. So many of them have gut issues and they think it's just food intolerances. You know, 90% of irritable bowel is SIBO. That's small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. I had it, struggled with it, you know, and these guys feed from fiber, even healthy fibers in the small intestine. So people listening will go, gosh, I wish I could eat all those fibers. They kill me, right? I mean, so you may have SIBO. Right, so you have to be careful with certain fibers with certain people, but I like fiber for those who can do fiber.
1: Oh yes, SIBO. I'm actually having Dr. Pimentel on the podcast soon, and I'm going because <laughs> I personally had SIBO as well. So I have so many SIBO questions. I definitely understand that.
0: Yeah, I mean, so so many people have it, and they think it's just food intolerances and it's SIBO and the bloating, and oh, it's so hard. So much of it's linked to hidden infections in the mouth, whether it be. Cavitations where you've got wisdom teeth extracted, they healed over root canals. So,
1: yes, I just realized like I just started learning about that. And I, like, I got my wisdom teeth out in 2012, and I've actually had residual jaw pain and TMJ since then. And I recently, so interesting that you brought that up, have been hearing about people who have basically they could get a chronic infection from that that TMJ, which kind of like lives in their jaw and then is feeding into their, their mouth, I think it's really not appreciated how much that can affect things, like our mouth.
0: and <laughs> yeah, it's estimated that 85% of chronic, unexplainable diseases, illnesses are created from the mouth. I can tell you this, you know, dealing with really sick and challenged people, get a cone beam, that's C-O-N-E-B-E-A-M. It's a 3D x-ray. And it's not a panoramic x-ray. You cannot see these hidden infections on a plain film x-ray. You need a cone beam. And then you need someone who's trained in reading them for cavitation, right? So twofold there. And I can tell you, you know, we're my doctor group that I train. uh, We would all agree that this is probably one of the biggest issues that we see. Here's the fun part. When you find these things and you deal with them, People oftentimes, they leave the dentist and life changes immediately. I had a guy, 21 years of chronic pain, liver pain, 21 years. This guy had the money to go to the best in the world on the allopathic side, gave up on that, went to the best in the world on the functional medicine side, gave up on that. Somehow he came to me and I was stunned that no one really addressed the heavy metals in his brain which was driving so much of his hormone imbalance, but no one ever did a cone beam on him. We did a cone beam, three big cavitations. He texted me on the way out of the dentist's office saying, is it possible that my pain could be gone and how long could it last or is it going to last? I said, I don't know. We'll see. It's never come back. He left the office out of the dental chair. I, I've had this happen so many times, and he never had pain again. <laughs> so I, these infections drive so much autoimmune, so many gut problems that will never he- never heal. you know, so many chronic pain, autoimmune. I, I can go down a list, and if you don't remove the cause and the source, you will never get well. Despite a perfect diet, despite the best supplements, I can't believe how many doctors are not looking upstream. To some of these sources like cavitations, light root canals, like living in Modi homes, like heavy metals in the brain. I mean, come on, these are the big drivers. And then you have to say, well, how are they addressing it? Because then they're putting people on Corella and then they're putting, you know, people on, okay, just do this cleanse and that. And they do it for three months and they think you're okay. Are you kidding? It was years of bioaccumulating the stuff in the tissues. You know, so anyway, these are pet peeves, but I've been doing this long enough to get irritated. <laughs>
1: Hi friends, one of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it. Kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel on well from it and it lasts for 14 hours anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com/ionlayer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches. Totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels and I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com/ionlayer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. No, completely warranted and I am I am so excited about this cone bean. That is just fascinating. Okay, despite any potential negatives from x-ray radiation exposure, I'm going to look into this ASAP.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, no doubt you'll get radiation. I I mean, take a ton of iodine ahead of it, just, yeah, but dang, is it worth it?
1: (laughs) Oh my goodness, so excited. Glad you brought up, though, the people thinking they're following the, quote, perfect diet, Do you believe there is? Well, I I I know the answer, but um, do you believe there is one right diet for everyone? Or what are your thoughts? Are there like basic food rules people can follow when it comes to diet? What are your thoughts on diet?
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, there's a two chapters in my book on diet variation, which I call feast famine cycling, because arguably it's one of the greatest biohacks that we can do is change our diet. Believe it or not, so you have people in the camps keto. Paleo, vegan, vegetarian, carnivore, it's going to keep switching around and around. And, and, you know, people end up in those camps because arguably, hey, I went vegetarian or vegan and it changed my life. I felt so much better. But if they stay on that diet, they'll end up sick from other problems. And likewise, paleo, right? High protein for too long is damaging, right? Longo talks about however short term, I believe it's actually healing. You know, so the point is, is when we look at the science, it doesn't hold up on holding, staying on one diet always. Today, we have the ability to stay on the same eight foods, 10 foods, same diet all the time. However, back in the day, ancient cultures, they were always forced to change their diet. I don't care what climate you were from, but it was environmental changes, foods, animals moving in and out, climate changes. I mean, you name it, forced people to change their diet, which we know now is it forces an adaptation. When the body adapts or wants to survive, basically it will adapt. And through that adaptation, you get stronger if you adapt, right? So when you change your diet, it's like exercise. You get stronger and stronger. And that's why, by the way, if you go into the gym and you did the same exercise every time you went to the gym, you would no longer have results. Maybe in a month, maybe two it would start to actually get worse. No different with diet. So you change your diet just like you do an exercise routine. All of a sudden, you start getting results again. We know now that your microbiome resets when you change your diet. We know that you get a hormone optimization when you change your diet. So all of these things, your cells get more sensitive. You reset your DNA. Every ancient culture was forced to do it. So what we do with our very sick and challenged people is we constantly rotate diets seasonally We even do it monthly where we'll mimic feast famine. We'll do five days of higher healthy carbs. Then we'll do five days of partial fasting. So monthly is a strategy. And ladies, if you want to break through weight loss, resistance, hormone problems, eating high healthy carbs five days before your cycle is magic because you need higher glucose and insulin levels during that time to make certain hormone conversions. That's why you get cravings during that time. The body knows what it's doing. And then we even bring it down to weekly variations, where one or two days a week, we throw in either high protein or high carbs. Matter of fact, that variation of high protein days, high carb days, it's again, it's another biohack to fire the fat burning machine back up and get somebody utilizing fat. I talk all about it in my book.
1: Yeah, I love that so much. That was something I wanted to really pick your brain on was this idea of diet variation and forced adaptation, like you call it. Okay, so you've got You said like the seasonal variation, a monthly variation, and then like the weekly variation. So seasonally, I guess in the broader picture, would that look like eating with the season? So like, you know, higher carbs, probably lower fat during the summer and then more ketogenic or, you know, higher fat, lower carb during the winter. Is that in general?
0: Yeah, I think that's a very intelligent way of doing it. And our microbiome changes per season based on where the sun is literally and i mean that's amazing i mean the earth's microbiome changes right you know leaves change colors etc fall off start again so when we're doing these seasonal changes there's an argument for that however i can tell you just clinically that any change seems to work whether you change your diet every month every two months you know once you become really fat adapted i oftentimes with my travel change my diet every couple weeks i mean moving in and out of different diets. The change, no matter what, like exercise, seems to be the magic because it drives a hormone optimization. Why? Because the body's trying to adapt.
1: So would it be important, given that idea that any change you know, can create a beneficial effect, is it important, though, that somebody is, before doing that, quote, metabolically flexible so that they are able to switch between burning you know, functioning and creating energy from the different lower carb versus higher carb? Or could anybody switch it up?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think seasonal changes everyone benefits from. But I mean, to your point, though, in my book, you know, we fat adapt people first, and then we start varying the diet. I think there is a greater adaptation hormone optimization that occurs with that. But again, I, I think some of these just seasonal changes changing what we eat, there's still a benefit.
1: And do you know, as far as our cells generating energy from, for example, fats and ketones versus glucose, do you know the timeline of like, or how easily that can switch back and forth once somebody is metabolically flexible? I guess where I'm coming from with this question is sometimes I will get into a groove that is feeling really good for me. You know, maybe it's lower carb and then, oh, in case you're wondering, I follow like a a paleo type. Approach. So I eat, you know, all whole foods. It's very, very much in line with what you discuss in your book, which for listeners, there will be a link to that in the show notes. So sometimes I will get, you know, into a groove that I'm feeling really good with, lower carb, and then I'll want to switch things up, bring higher carb. But I have this, I always wonder if in doing so, is it making my cells lose some of their metabolic potential when it comes to burning fats and ketones? And then I need to like relearn or reset? Or do you think the cells maintain this inherent flexibility and switching back and forth between burning the different things?
0: Yeah, totally. Actually, it's the opposite, meaning the more you do this, the faster your body can shift back and forth. You know, Mark says and I, in our space, it's called metabolic flexibility to put a name on it, right? And basically means the healthier you are, the faster you can shift gears, sugar burner, fat burner. Your body needs sugar, it'll burn sugar. If you have carbs, it'll burn the carbs. If you're not eating at all, it'll immediately start burning fat, right? So it has the ability, healthy people, to shift back and forth like a kid, right? Kids can just burn up the sugar, and if they're not eating, they'll burn up all their fat. I mean, that's a healthy human. So part of this variation strategy is to get people to break through and become more metabolically flexible. So the more we start doing feast, famine, feast, famine, the better they get at it. The cells get used to doing it
1: follow-up question on that you were speaking like on a weekly basis of having you know these higher protein lower carb days and then these
0: yeah higher carb or higher protein days
1: higher carb or higher protein so is that a consistent in that or are you lower fat on the higher carb days
0: yeah so i lean more towards low carb for me genetically however i know that when i was low carb all the time i started getting skinny fat where i was literally dropping my carbs down to 10 grams a day or less And I was going, what the heck is going on? I was getting weaker in the gym, so I was losing muscle, and my belly fat was getting more. And I was very frustrated. Then I I just started doing research, finding low-carb diets can cause insulin resistance, which I found out was actually true. But it's not insulin resistance like the disease state. It's insulin resistance because the body goes into a survival mode, meaning it says, okay, I've been doing this fat burning for so long. This is my only survival fuel. So I'm going to start storing more of it in case, because all the body wants to do is survive. So in case we run out, I want to have this fuel that, you know, I'm only using now. The example is this. If if you're in the a cabin in the middle of Alaska, right, it's like, and you have a wood stack that will last you the winter, and this winter is super hard and long, and you realize Okay, I'm going through my wood too fast. Are you going to burn more or less to survive? You're going to burn less and less wood to the point where you're okay with it being, you know, 55 degrees in your cabin, burning less wood. Why? Just to survive. Well, that's what your body does with its fat stores. If that's the same as uh, looking at it like the wood pile, so your body wants to burn less just in case it needs it. So you start storing the fat. How does it do that? Well, it'll blunt insulin receptors magically from the dna what happens when you do that well it starts storing fat you'll start holding on to your fat and then if your body needs that emergency fuel yeah it'll start gluconeogenesis up at night and start burning muscle so you start losing muscle gaining fat in the wrong places and it's not good so i realized bodybuilders had this figured out years ago they would throw in these carb days to stop the gluconeogenesis of their muscle fire up the fat burning machine you know, the, right before a competition, they do carb days and become in leaner. What? How is that possible? Because you remind the body it's not starving, and then it'll start burning fat again. Two days after a carb day, all of a sudden, you look at your ketones, and they're soaring off the chart as an indicator that your body said, okay, I can start burning fat again. We're not starving to death. So that's really why it works. Now, again, I would argue that there are certain conditions where doing carbs aren't a good thing. And we use high protein, and it seems to work the same way. So we utilize that high protein just to remind the body it's not starving.
1: So the using the high protein, I know you just said this, but how is that telling the body it's not starving? Is it purely from, well, it's not, I'm guessing it's not a caloric standpoint, but it's just from the macronutrient of protein? Or is it from gluconeogenesis from the protein?
0: Yeah, I I think that arguably anything could be used that stimulates mTOR. Okay, I don't want to get too far here, but we have two pathways that are like opposite of each other. We have autophagy, which we spoke about. That's the fasting state where your body will use its own cells, bad cells. Then we have mTOR, which is a anabolic state, a building state that bodybuilders love because they want to put on muscle. Now, is that long-term healthy? No, right? But they don't care. They want to put on muscle. So what do they do to do that? They eat extra protein. eat extra calories and they eat extra carbs. All of those things work to push them into this mTOR state. So you had Walter Longo on. He no doubt hates mTOR. And I argue with that group that mTOR is actually good in the short term. When you bodybuilders take steroids, they go crazy mTOR. And when they first get on steroids, they go, my joints feel better, right? Well, then in the long run, it doesn't work for them. I mean, it ages them in the long run, but a short term burst. That that stimulates mTOR for a day can remind the body it's not starving. It's an anabolic state.
1: Yeah, not to go too far on the mTOR train, but it gets to me too because, you know, people will say they'll always talk about how, you know, these high protein or high meat diets are, you know, really stimulating of mTOR so they're not in favor of longevity. But like a hack in a way that I see it as potentially beneficial is, you know, somebody practicing an intermittent fasting pattern where they're not stimulating mTOR at all during the fast, and then still having adequate or even higher amounts of protein in a shortened eating window at night. I mean, I potentially see that as a way to both benefit from mTOR and still have the, you know, the anti-aging longevity effects of fasting. I think just so many of the studies are looking at chronically high mTOR release from eating constantly, you know, eating or like eating meat.
0: Well, look, I mean, to your point, if you're eating three, four meals a day, Right. And you're eating a little bit of protein each meal. Let's say it's not hard to eat 40 grams of protein or 50 grams of protein in a meal, right? Even 70 for that matter. Okay. If you ate one meal, 70 grams of protein for someone who weighs 150 pounds, that's a very low amount, actually. I mean, that's a very normal amount that I think is very healthy. Okay. Now, if you did that three times a day, okay, now you're talking about. A lot of mTOR stimulation that would arguably be bad, right? So when you look at these studies, you can make a study say what you want, right? It's like, because you're not looking at it in real life. When I was in Africa, I spent some time with an amazing hunting gathering tribe. You know, they would go times where they didn't have meat and they were vegetarians. Then they would go to times where they, all they ate was meat because the kill was great. Look at that stimulation. These people didn't have disease. They were so healthy. So again, what were they emulating? Feast, famine. Oh, and by the way, they had one meal in the afternoon that lasted probably three hours, right? So they feasted for three hours. You know, that was their cultural way. And really, you look at most of Europe, that's really the way it is, you know, but the point is, is that it's not as simple as just looking at an amount of protein, right? It's, it's a little bit more complicated than
1: that. Yeah, it reminds me of, for example, like the Hunza tribe. Like when they were initially documented, I think they were seen during a seasonal eating approach, so it was assumed they were always eating this like one
0: yeah, they thought they were vegetarians, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, but it turns out that was not the case, yeah, I, I feel like context is so key
0: <laughs> yeah when, when they would when they would visit them in the winter, all they ate was like fat, dairy, and meat, you know, it's like what, and then in the spring, it's known as fasting spring in that culture where they they would go for a week of not eating while they were transitioning. Right. It's which arguably could be why they lived so long healthy. But yeah, there you go.
1: Even like um, the Inuit, for example, which we often use as the prime example of ketogenic diets. I could be incorrect on this, but I, I believe I read something about them having actually a genetic, some sort of genetic tendency where they actually don't enter ketosis. Have you heard this? Have you read about this?
0: No, no, I haven't. But, you know, those people, when they had carbs, they went after them, boy, I'll tell you that, you know? so
1: <laughs> Yeah. And something about how they burn fat, I think Chris Masterjohn had a really fascinating video on it, which I'll find it and put it in the link, a link to it in the show notes. But it's just really interesting because we use them. I mean, they do follow, in general, a very low carb, super, super low carb diet. But we use them as an example for the ketogenic diet when if they do have the genetic tendency where they're actually not easily. Entering ketosis—that's fascinating. <laughs> so there's just so many factors. One really super random question, and I don't want to monopolize all of your time here, but I love that you brought up in your the fa- your fasting book that you're talking about eating according to, for example, like Leviticus and how they define foods as clean and unclean. I'm actually really fascinated by that. Do you know if there's like a, a reason for why certain foods are considered in the Bible as clean or unclean from a health perspective? Like now, like do we know more now scientifically why that might be?
0: Yeah, there was, there's was. there been some studies. I think one was at John Hopkins and they looked at the foods that were considered unclean and they test them and realize that they were foods that held toxins. I mean, just look at it logically, right? We know that eating carnivores, we just don't do that. Why? Because they have such a short digestive tract and the meat is very toxic. So we don't do that, right? Well, that's an unclean meat. And it's a don't eat roadkill, basically. <laughs> it doesn't say that, but basically don't eat an animal that was already dead. Why? Because we know that toxins are already in the meat. You know, when we look at that time, God gave the Israelites very strict rules around it. And again, then it was more for spiritual reasons, so they thought. But really, it was also for health reasons. You know, the rules apply even to this day. Even the commands about hand washing, etc. You know, when we look at those meats, pork was on the unclean list. Pigs eat their own waste, right? I mean, it's like they're they're very uncleanly animals. So back then, pigs actually were a lot. They transmitted a lot of disease in their flesh today we raise pigs safer so arguably it's not as bad but i mean again when we look at bottom dwellers in the ocean right lobsters crabs all on the unclean list they're literally filters of the sea i mean they you could put a lobster you know in a bucket of battery acid and you know most of it's absorbed i mean they literally clean our oceans you know there's truth to the fact that there's unclean and clean meats to this day. And for the most part, a little bit of the unclean meat, yeah, your body will deal with it. But eating a lot of it is unclean. You won't be hurt from a spiritual perspective, from a physical one, it may affect you though.
1: Do you know if it's true? I've read that pigs don't sweat. And so they also maintain more toxins in their in their flesh. Is that?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think it is, yes, that's true. And I think no matter what, pig is going to have a little a higher toxic flesh than say a cow.
1: I actually read a study recently where they they were looking at the inflammatory potential of pork and how different preparation methods affected it. Have you, have you seen that?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting because they were trying to see how it would basically lead to like inflammation in the blood. And they found that traditionally prepared pork, so like preparing it in an acidic medium, certain types of curing actually almost completely mitigated the inflammatory response, but, you know, just eating like fresh pork had a very inflammatory potential. So it's so interesting, like from a historical perspective, humankind and cultures have been having all of these, you know, preparation methods and these, you know, these religious texts and all these things, which were doing things that now, quote, scientifically, we realized what they were doing. It's kind of to bring things full circle, like you were saying with uh, fasting, how there is just this innate sense of intuition within our bodies. I think there was just an intuition to everything. And it's so inspiring to now understand more and more the why behind things.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, even just to leave it on this note, animals instinctively fast when they're sick, when they're injured. Humans, we literally have to be taught to some degree. You think about when you get the flu, right? I mean, you know, you're not running to the dinner table. Your body's saying, don't do it. But yet when you break your arm, you're still shoveling away. You know? It's, you know, my son, I said he broke his back. He fasted for five days. And at the hospital, they were trying to make him eat and he wasn't. He wasn't hungry. He was listening to his body, frankly. You know, he was like, it's the last thing I want to do. But he also knew because he's been educated around fasting. He's 21 years old. He jumped off a cliff to go to the water. But he didn't see an outcliff about 50 feet down, and he hit. He should have died, and he should have been paralyzed, but he was neither, thank God. But he did have a fracture that he should have been paralyzed. Praise God, it moved in the right direction, not into his court. However, they said he would be in bed 12 to 15 weeks. Two weeks later, he was walking, and he was off OxyContin, which they wanted him to do this anterior surgery that was nasty, and he would had hardware in his spine his whole life, and he opted out. And, you know, I I said, give me 24 hours to do some homework here. And needless to say, we sided on the side of not doing it, which the doctors were like, well, two and a half weeks, we'll take an x-ray just to see if it's holding. And I doubt it. Daniel is his name. He said, you know, Daniel, I wouldn't get your hopes up. Well, they did the x-ray and he was stunned that not only held this like nasty kink that was in there was like already coming out. So here we are eight weeks out and he's walking around working out in the gym, (laughs) you know, but the point is, is he fasted for five days and then we went mTOR, we feasted, you know, he ate high protein and all this, you know, stimulated mTOR. So feast famine was part of his recovery.
1: Wow. That is really powerful. Brings me to two final questions. The second, the runner up question is on that note, do you think anybody can heal given the right the right circumstances and environment and everything that we've discussed?
0: Yeah, look, you remove the interference, the innate intelligence knows what to do, right? Now that interference may be physical, emotional, chemical, but remove them all. And typically it's a combination of all of those that fill up our stress bucket that one day overflows and the symptoms began, That's what happened to me. You know, you empty it out, magic happens, right? The body can heal, I believe everyone can.
1: It's so wonderful. And then last question, this is actually what I ask every single guest is the final question. And it's just because I've realizing more and more how important mindset is, not just in our minds, but on a physical level as well. So what is something that you're grateful for?
0: Right now, my son walking and being alive, I keep getting emotional about it. You know, we were in the gym, the other day, and I just like looked over and thought, we wouldn't be here. At first I pictured him in a wheelchair and he's not. And then I pictured him alive. He's not. He is, you know, and I just, I got emotional about it. And I'm grateful that I'm well through my illness. You know, I didn't see the purpose God had in it for me. And my wife would remind me, God is not only going to heal you, but he's going to take a message through you to the world. And I never saw that, you know, but here I am on this podcast and others. I'm grateful for that. I am.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Pompa. I'm so grateful for our conversation. I'm so grateful for all of the work that you're doing. I think it's helping so many people more than you ever, ever can know. I've learned so much from it. And um, it's just been a true honor to have you here on the podcast today. So thank you. Thank you so much. How can listeners, I'll, I'll put links to everything that we discussed, but how can listeners best follow your work? What all would you like to put out there for them?
0: Yeah. I mean, if you just go to my website, dr and then pompa.com, my podcast there, coaching services. I mean, everything you'd look for is there. My Facebook, which I do. Matter of fact, fasting for a purpose. That's my Facebook group you could go to. You could put that in the links. I'm leading a group through a fast next month, the end of October. There'll be 20 some thousand of us. Anyways, fasting for a purpose. Join us there too
1: fantastic okay so for listeners again the show notes for today's episode will be at ifpodcast.com slash fasting detox and i will put links to everything that we discussed but again thank you dr pompa so much for being here and i look forward to you know speaking with you again in the future maybe hopefully meeting you in person someday and this has been a true honor
0: thanks for having me, melanie
1: right, thank you